Kim Lewis, CEO and founder of Curlmix. Welcome to the podcast. It is so good to have you here. Thank you, Johnny. I'm happy to see your lovely face again. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm so excited for this one. You can't play favorites, right? You can't have a favorite kid, but of uh, all the thousands of founders that I've uh, connected with down the years at WeFunday, you got to be right up there, maybe <laughs> the favorite. So thanks so much for, for being willing to, to take the time and share your uh, wisdom and insights um, with founders that are listening. But maybe uh, to kick things off, just give us the, the high-level overview on, on what you guys uh, are doing with Curlmix. Uh, for sure. And that's a high compliment, Johnny. I am sure I'm not the favorite. I was a thorn in your side the entire time I was raising, I'm sure. No, no you were not. No, you were not. Um, but hi, everyone. I'm Kim, CEO and co-founder of Curlmix. We help you master your curls in 21 days. Our product is free via store credit. You are buying from our .com. Curlmix is just one of our brands in our portfolio. Our whole code is called Listener Brand. And we own both Chromix and 4C Only. 4C Only is the first hair care brand dedicated exclusively to 4C hair. And we manufacture our products. So we literally have a 30,000 square foot facility on the south side of Chicago with kettles and pumping lines uh, where we both pick, pack, make, and ship all of our own products in-house. It made in the USA in Chicago and hiring people from the community. We raised... Whew, almost $10 million, I want to say, across very non-traditional types of funding. I mean, um, it, we put in money on our credit cards, starting out the business, and then we got angel money, and then we were on Shark Tank, and then we raised money on WeFunder, uh, probably one of the largest raises uh, on WeFunder, especially from a Black female founder. And then I'm actually doing my first institution around this year. So it's funny. It, and then I got money from a foundation before, too, in a form of a loan, but it was pretty substantial. So I feel like I've had a very non-traditional funding journey but happy to be here just more lessons and more information i can share with other founders amazing and yeah looking forward to diving deeper on multiple of those capital options uh you've had a very eclectic approach to capital i'm so curious to dive into a bunch of them but yeah maybe we could get started with a little bit of the founding story because i think it's a, such a fun one uh and obviously you have to tell the who wants to be a millionaire story as well <laughs> oh that's like i always skip over that story most people don't get the who wants to be a millionaire story because it was pre-curl mix it was like right out of college but i'll give you that story i'll include that so uh, in college my goal was to be the perfect corporate worker bee that was my plan i had no interest entrepreneurship maybe curious but like not taking it seriously because I didn't come from any kind of money and I had never even met an entrepreneur in my life so until I went to college maybe sophomore junior year I met my first like entrepreneur um and so I was doing that I was working in corporate hating my job it was a very conservative place that I worked and they basically my manager told me I sucked every single day literally he's like you suck and you're not gonna last here uh and you can imagine me fresh out of college with all these big dreams and I'm meeting people who worked here for like 20 years and they were like, yeah, you And I was like, wow, okay. And then he, he really just said I sucked because I had to stock groceries. And he basically, I wasn't coming. He wanted me to come an hour before I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be at 6 a.m. He wanted me to be there at 5 a.m. And like stock the whole like grocery area. Because was a, I was a manager in training. Anyway, didn't happen. I ended up quitting after reading the four-hour work week. And my plan was to literally travel the globe and work only four hours a week. <laughs> Did not happen. I ended up signing my husband up for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, and he's brilliant. He got like a perfect score on the ACT. He's he's just like a trivia buff. 
sign him up for the show. He ends up winning a hundred thousand dollars, and we put fifteen thousand of that into my first startup, which was the Natural Hair Academy. It was like a niche social network for natural hair. And if you know anything about tech, niche social networks don't work. So if you're thinking about building one, don't. <laughs> and we did that for two years. Realized that we would have to compete with Facebook to really be anything substantial, and was like, oh. This doesn't make sense. This is back in 2013. And we ended up just killing that business. But by that time, I had gotten good at content creation and I had done photography on the side. I was building websites. I was doing all the things, but doing them for free and not making any money. And that's when I saw an episode of Shark Tank where this woman was making organic cookies and she was putting all the organic materials in a box to send them to people so they would know exactly what was in their organic cookies, but they could make them at home themselves. At the time, the natural hair journey was taken off on YouTube. And I was like, man, I wonder if anyone doing this for natural hair. Because a lot of what, us are already- what year was this? This is like 2014. People were already making their own products at home. Meetups in the natural hair community were really big. And so people were just learning how to do their hair. So I launched my first box for Curl Mix June 2015. So one box to my cousin. And I was like, this is a dumb idea. We shouldn't have done it. My husband was like, no, Kim, if Airbnb can relaunch seven times, surely Chromix can relaunch twice. He's like, you mm -hmm. just launched wrong. So then he taught me how to launch. So, right. So uh, it is funny because he's sitting here with all this information and not giving it to me. And I'm like, we lived together. We've been together for over five years. How do you know how to launch a brand? But you didn't tell me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But he would read tons of books and things like that. And so what, what we ended up doing was um, you had to get people excited about your launch, right? So I had to get some influencers on board with it. So I reached out to like Nikki May or Natural Chica back at the time, Janelle B. Stewart and Hey Friend Hey. They were all like YouTubers with like 100,000 subscribers. I got them on board with the launch and I agreed to pay them a fee when their box launched. And so then- just to, just to double down on that. So how did you get them excited about it? How did you How did you reach out to them? Like why did they pay any attention to you? So I pitched them, I looked up how to pitch a journalist and I pitched those influencers the way you would pitch a journalist, which was basically like why this would matter to you. And I picked influencers who were into the natural and organic DIY kitchen titian type of thing. Like, hey, friend, hey, is super organic. Like, she don't even use nail polish with toxins in it. Okay, most people their level of crunchiness stops at nails. A lot of people just their <laughs> commitment to yeah, clean whatever doesn't extend exactly. to nails. Yeah, they're like, it's just nails. It's not going in my body. I'll be fine. Hey, friend, hey, is not like that. She's like, no, I want clean everything. I want clean nail polish. She's all in. I want clean Q-tips. Actually, I'm not going to use Q-tips because they're bad for the environment. You know what I mean? Like that kind. So, so, how many, so, so, okay, you got those three, but how many did you reach out to? Oh, probably 10. That's a, that's a pretty high conversion rate. 30%. <laughs> and I'm also I, mean, I feel like you need to you need to share the cold. Uh, you probably lost it in the sands of time, but you need to share that copy. 30% yeah. hit rate, uh, very early stage. That's, that's not bad. So we need to copy that word for word. But more than getting the influencers on board, I think the next piece that I did is something that founders can take home and do themselves when they're getting ready to launch something or trying to get in front of a journalist to cover their stuff. I looked up how to pitch a journalist. And when you pitch a journalist, you want to kind of write the article for them. You want to put the right. subject heading of whatever the title will be. And it needs to be like tantalizing. It needs to be like, well, I want to click and open this email because that's the title they're going to use for whatever it is you're pitching. And right. then in that, um, we went to this website called BuzzSumo and you can search articles in a certain industry or a topic in the last six months to see which ones have gotten the most reach. So I did that for do-it-yourself hair care products. And I found that this lady on Refining29, I forget her name, I think her name was like Jasmine. She had like the top articles for like DIY stuff. So I looked at the top 10, 15 articles. I read three pieces of work from each author of those articles. Right. And then I literally pitched them say, hey, I saw your article on, you know, making your own Cheve shampoo at home. Hey, I saw your article on the black soap 
blah, 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 blah. And I think that, you know, your audience would love the first curly DIY hair box or, you know what I mean? Whatever. And this launch, we're launching with Hey Friend, Hey, um, Janelle B. Stewart and such and such. And I think that uh, you're going to be want to know about this first. Now, when I first pitched journalists, I did not pitch them like this. I pitched them with just like, this is why I'm important and you should, you want to cover this. And, right. and they all said no. I had like seven no's. But I got this one yes from Refine29 after I had made it such a custom pitch for Jazz. And I did that for several other people, but her specifically, she said, okay, great, I'll cover it. So when she told me she would cover it, I went back to Essence, Ebony Magazine, Allure, Hyper. And I was like, hey, Refine 29 is covering. And this is funny because this is before Refine 29 was like a big, big, big deal. Back then they had maybe like less than a million subscribers on uh, less than a million Instagram followers. Now they probably have like tens of millions. But mm-hmm. she said she would cover it. And so then I literally traded it up the chain. So I went back to all those magazines and said, hey, you don't want to miss out. Refine 29 is covering. So the day we actually launched, we ended up getting seven to 10 publications to cover it. And we ended up doing a hundred boxes that first day. And I was like, this is how you launch, not the way I was launching before. That's such a great insight. Like folks that even maybe said no initially, but then you go back, I'm just thinking like it could work with retailers as well, right? Like, hey, you know, we're in we're in Target. Like, hey, dear Mr. Walmart, like you, you wanna, you probably wanna like catch up with uh, your competitor here, right? Like works works for journalists, maybe influencer marketing, uh, retailers as well. Uh, it's to me, no's are not no's not no forever, right? It's no, it's not for right now. Love that. That's a brilliant. That's like the title of the uh, the title of the post right there. <laughs> No, it's not forever. It's just no, not right now. So we went back and they, a lot of people picked it up. And so we literally grew that business to maybe 120K that year, uh, within a 12 month calendar month. And then the next year, like 140K. And I didn't know about Facebook ads at the time. I didn't know how to run them, didn't know how to get sales online. And I'm, I hated that I did it because this is back when Facebook was cheap. So I would have been crushing it yeah. had I known. <laughs> but I talked to a friend and found out that my margins were only 30% on every box. But mm-hmm. typical hair care uh, margins are like 80 to 90% at the same price point. So that means that for every dollar I'm getting, my competitor is getting three. And I was just like, oh my gosh, even if I could scale this business, I shouldn't because it's literally like that for business. Um, I won't be able to do anything. I won't be able to market the business. We'll be able to my team, all those different things. And so I was getting ready to close up the business. And I remember talking to one of my advisors and I met him through Backstage Capital because Arlen from Arlen Hamilton of Backstage Capital wrote me my very first check for $25,000. And he basically was like, what's your best selling box? I'm like, well, it's our flaxseed gel, but no manufacturer will make it because you literally have to boil raw flaxseed that you might, might put in a smoothie or use as an egg substitute. When you boil them, you get a really gooey gel and you have to extract the gel from that and then put it in the bottle. And manufacturers don't want to do that. They want to put some carbomer, some polymer, some water, mix it up put it in a jar and say, hey, this is gel. But we are like one of the few people making natural, fresh gel that you cannot get anywhere else. And so, unless you make it at home yourself. And he was basically just like, figure it out. So I was. Right. So you you were making it right yourself and putting yeah. it in the box. Yes, okay. yes. Yeah. So this is me. I'm seven months pregnant. September 2017. I am making 50 different batches of flaxseed gel, and so I can come up with something that I think can scale that people will love. And I, people would flag me down in the street when my hair was like this and say, "How did you do your hair like that? Like, what are you using? Like, I'm on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. That's the equivalent of like I don't know. What's a big street in New York? <laughs> or it's like Champs-Élysées in Paris, in Paris. Right. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. Yeah. It's a big deal. And people are like flagging me down in the street to figure out like, what did you put in your hair? So like, I knew I was on to something. So I came up with the batch. Um, we did pre-orders with our audience and we literally sold hundreds in a matter of hours. And at that time, we were only doing like $15,000 a month at our best month. So to sell hundreds of, in a matter of hours of anything. A few hours, yeah. 
Yes. I was like, We're oh, on to something. this is it. So we literally pivoted the business top of January, 2018. I had just given birth. My baby was six weeks old. And that year we, that month we did $3,000 in sales. I was like, oh my gosh, I knew this is a bad idea. We should just fold the, up the business. Cause we had literally tossed out six months of DIY boxes. Like we had formulas, we had pictures taken. We had like promotion, everything lined up. We were like, but this is not what people want. Let's stop doing that. And the next month, we, I'm like, okay, we did eight thousand dollars. I'm like, man, okay, if we can get back to sixteen, like or fifteen thousand, we'll be back to our best month ever. We ended up doing thirty thousand dollars that third month, and wow. we did not run a single ad or anything. And I was like, oh, we're on to it. I was like, Tim, quit your job. You should come work in the business. Okay, so I have a couple of questions on that. Uh, firstly, obviously, it's like you always index on sunk costs, right? Like, oh, we've put all this effort into this, the box business. Like, it's so hard to like shut it down. So, do you have any advice for like how, how should a founder like get to that kind of clarity of like decision making and like not index on the wrong thing, i.e., sunk costs? Any any tips for how you kind of got that? Yeah, one of the things I noticed is my best customers were unsubscribing because they had boxes at home that they hadn't gotten to. So I learned that my product was a vitamin and not a painkiller. It was fun to do, but it wasn't really solving their problem because they were still buying ready-made products. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that it was novelty. Like it was just, it was fun, but it was not necessary. You know, novelty, not necessity, vitamin, not a painkiller. And I was like, okay, so this isn't really solving a problem. That was, you know, and so people sometimes would say, oh, well you have, people were selling pet rocks. So you could sell anything. You can sell anything, but people are not still buying pet rocks. It's harder. It's harder. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you might get a, uh, you could do a, you could sell fidget spinners. And you might have a business for a year or two, but mm -hmm. unless you have a brand, unless you have a brand with brand equity, you have people who are attached to the brand, it's not going to be something that can last for a decade or a hundred years. And so it just depends what kind of business you're building. And for me, I wanted to build a hundred million dollar business um, so I could get venture funding. And I couldn't do that with the lifestyle business that I had built as a do-it-yourself buy. And so I knew this was going to take me to the next level. Got it. The second question I was going to ask was basically, I mean, the, the crazy growth, right? I think you said, you know, 4K, 8K, 30K. I guess a lot of that was coming from the customers for the box business and you kind of reaching out to them. Is that right? Yes and no. The first three, eight, 3K, 8K, yes. The 30K, I had partnered with uh, micro influencers. So people who had less than like 20,000 Instagram followers. And you couldn't even link out back then um, if you had didn't have more than 10,000. Um, and my best partners were people who used to use Diva Curl but no longer used it and wanted to do, and I knew this because I was looking up the hashtag Diva Curl and I was finding that, oh, they were using, these people might use do a wash and go. Because people who were buying the flaxseed gel were doing this hairstyle. And I was like, oh, what were they using before? Oh, they were using Diva Curl before, but they wanted a more natural alternative. Okay. And then I worked with stylists and I gave stylists 10 to 20% of the revenue that they brought in with their code. And the code was 20% off. And so like one stylist brought in like $5,000 that month on, on their own. I was like, oh, wow. I was like this, I, you've got to get with like the, the partner professionals that people trust, not just like traditional influencers in that sense. You know what I mean? Like true loyalists of their stylists. That's a really, so that was a really powerful growth channel for you. The, the kind of, what would you say? Affiliate, affiliate marketing or kind of, yes. you know, partner channel but any any tips on like how how you made that work like how you set up the incentives or who you decided to reach out to how you framed it to them like did you was i was this just you making a lot of calls or did you were you starting to like grow a team who were you know reaching out that's to so silence? funny 
in the beginning, our first million dollars, I did not have a solid team. Tim and me, and you, in the beginning, in my opinion, you need a, two people who are, who are willing to do anything, any and everything. Right. And so while I was doing the email marketing for the business and making products and shipping out products, I was also in the DMs, reaching out to influencers, asking to work with them and see if they'd be open to revenue sharing. And essentially that was the partnership. And I basically looked up the hashtag Diva Curl and then scrolled through for hours looking at people and then DMing all of them. And literally mm-hmm. I had put the code in Shopify. So literally like their name with 20 off and they said, hey, you guys would get, um, I would give them like 15% of sales monthly payout. Um, and I would send them a screenshot of their sales so they would know this is how you're getting the 15%, what you're getting the 15% of. And this is before they had platforms that could do all this for you. You could pay it, right. pay it out through that and you could- Kind of manual, um, yeah. Yeah, it was incredibly manual. And it's like, it's not sexy. It's like, it was work. <laughs> it's not sexy at all. But that's what we did to kind of, and then two months later, we started investing in Facebook ads. So that was our first 50K month when we started investing in Facebook ads. And when was, when was that in the timeline? So this was in May. We started with $30 a day on Facebook. Uh-huh. Got it. And was the Facebook return on ad spend like immediately you were good or? Was, I mean, it was good, but we were, we were not, were we profitable that year? We were profitable, but only because we had everyone as a contractor. So like me and Tim were sharing like $60,000 in, in, in pay, take home pay, which is crazy because he was making like almost 200,000 when he left his job. So we were like suffering. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, so you had the initial uh, customer base from the box business. Then the stylist is kind of, you know, affiliate kind of referral partners starting to grow it then you have the kind of facebook kind of paid ads mm-hmm. and then kind of where did that take you to or like what what were the other kind of how did you kind of take it up to the next level so that year it got us to about a million in revenue and we had minimal losses but we weren't proud then at the end of the year we ended up having like 100k in credit card debt so a lot of companies if you notice that they'll sit with if you look at like public companies sometimes they'll sit with like 10 percent of whatever their revenue is in debt so i was like okay well we're not too bad if <laughs> that was my measurement like we're not too bad and then we appeared on shark tank that next year so our episode on shark tank aired in march of 2019 and that was when I, so keep in mind to get to that million in revenue, we had gotten our $25,000 from Arlen from Backstage Capital. Got yep. a million, then appeared on Shark Tank that next year. And right around the time we were on the show, that's when we raised the $1.2 million from Jeff Weiner, the former CEO of LinkedIn and his partners for the $1.2 million. And then that helped us get to the $5 million in revenue. So, so many questions. Firstly, on the Arlen thing, she's awesome backstage capital. How did you, how did you connect with her and close that first, you know, his future? You know, it's so funny. Arlen right now is like famous, right? Like, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. Arlen Hamilton. Well, I met Arlen at her very first speaking event back in 2017. Literally. Wow, was that in Chicago? No, it was in Silicon Valley. It was in the basement of a tech inc- or a co-working did you space. Go, did you fly out to meet with her and see yeah, her? Like, wow. I, I, would, I didn't even know her at the time. So I wasn't coming to see her. I was actually coming to see somebody else. I was coming tell to see me. like Danielle I went, Leslie. I wouldn't tell her. I wouldn't tell her. I love Arlen. She knows. It doesn't <laughs> She's amazing. I was my Shiro. She is invested in every round that we've raised. Like the very, she's the very first check in, and then she's invested maybe three more times since, whether personally or through Backstage Capital or through some of her other LPs. Um, so I will sing her praises for days. She's my Shiro, and she's made intros to other investors. But I was just saying that she wasn't famous back then because that's how I saw how much we hustle, you know, and we kind of rely on like the belief in ourselves and taking a chance and getting lucky because we lived in Chicago and this is 2017. Again, I, I hadn't pivoted the business yet. We were doing the DIY box, but I knew it wasn't 
working and I knew I'm like, I'm going to raise money for the business, but I shouldn't fund what this is because this doesn't work. So I need to figure out what that next pivot is going to be and find money in between. And I remember seeing an event for black and brown founders. That was the name of the organization. And I remember saying, okay, Del Del from Code 2040 is going to be there. Danielle Leslie from Course and Scratch is going to be there. Tara Reed from Ask Without Code is going to be there. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go see these three ladies and this will make it worth it. The event was only $40, but I was like, these women are dope. Why is it not more money? And they also would have like this speed dating with VCs. And it's so funny because I didn't even get to do the speed dating with the VCs because I had to go back to Chicago for the women in STEM accelerator that were starting. That's when I learned my box was like a pain, I mean, a vitamin, not a painkiller. But Tim stayed and got to meet with Arlen and pitched the boxes to her. And so she was like, I'm really interested, but you know, I don't have the money today, but I probably will in six months. So I'm going to give you guys a call. But in the meantime, I can, you know, I'll take it. If you're open to it, I'll have some advisory shares. And then, you know, I will make sure you're in the backstage capital loop and you'll get to come to all the events and meet with all the LPs and network. I'm like, boom, I love it. So we ended up signing her as an advisor. And then we came back that next month. I mean, this is March, April. We came back in August for the demo day with the uh, LPs. So we got to meet a lot of the limited partners, which is where I met my advisor who told me to do the flaxseed job. He was like, stop doing these boxes and do the flaxseed job. Like that's what people want. You do that. And it was just so funny because like we didn't get the money to maybe like February that next year, almost like a whole year later. But it was perfect because we had pivoted by then. So the $25,000 went to buying our first machine that could help us make 600 units in a batch. Versus so it was good timing. Mm -hmm. It was perfect timing. So we met Marlon on a whim, like literally like randomly just trying to be in the room with the right people. And um, yeah. Serendipity for the whim. <laughs> yes. And then what about what about Jeff Wiener, CEO of LinkedIn? Um, was that an intro for Marlon or how, how did you guys get connected? Funny enough, Arlen had so because I was I've never won money at a pitch competition, Johnny. And I have pitched It's a crime. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to the wrong quick pitch competitions. I've done like 30, 40, I don't know, so many. And it's always because I'm- That is honestly high. like very, very surprising to me, but yeah. <laughs> I'm always, I come close, top three, but never, I've never taken home money. And- Well, now, now it's too late, okay, right? It's like maybe you've, that ship has sailed. You'll never ever win money at a pitch competition ever until you start your next company maybe, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> very true, very, very true. It's cool though, I, I you know. I've raised money. That's the ultimate win, right? Yeah. So where, where, where was I? Jeff uh, Wiener. Jeff Wiener. Yes, 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 yes. So when we were going on Shark Tank, I was like, oh my gosh, you, you only get three weeks to prepare. They call you three weeks before your show airs. And then you're like, holy crap, I got to figure out how to get the inventory for this deal or to, so that I'm not like out of stock. What does that look like in terms of site traffic, in terms of like inventory? I don't know what your run rate was leading up to it, but is it like 10x that week? You know, a typical kind week? Of, or, it, just, yeah. it depends. It depends. Okay. So it depends on what order you go up in the show. If you go up first, oh. you're going to get like a ton of traffic. Yeah. Those are people like the Bomba socks, like the, like they, they do like maybe your numbers if you go up second a little less than the first you go up third a little less than the second if you go last like that's when it's like it's abysmal and you're like dang it and the way that you make sure you go first is you need to cry <laughs> or have some kind of like emotional reaction <laughs> in the episode <laughs> Yeah. So you, you you were like cutting onions before you went on stage. Oh man, I wish. No, we didn't shuck and jive. We didn't cry, but I should have, man. My friend who did did a million dollars that month. She was on Shark Tank. Like, <laughs> I wish I had cried. Okay. <laughs> no, 
That's a good. That's a good little. That's a good secret right there. If you go on, if you go on Shark Tank, make sure you cry. It's well, more because, more viral on social. You'll get up in the number one spot. Because people forget, Shark Tank is not about good business. It's about good TV. About good TV, yeah, yeah. Good yeah. TV, and just like you make content, you want people to, you know, you want it to go viral. You want it to get millions of views. Shark Tank literally wins Emmys. They are there yeah. to make it entertaining. So but, how did you? How did uh, did you? I I can't remember. You've told me this before, but did did you get an offer? Did you take? Yeah, I got a $400,000 offer from uh, Robert Hershevik for 20% equity stake. Um, but that was the year we were going to make a million dollars. And I was like, Robert, this is robbery. Uh, did you say that? No, but maybe well, I should say that. that. That would have been good TV right there. <laughs> Robert, Robert the Robert. <laughs> okay, so, um, but did you take it on air and then back out or? No, we turned it down okay. on air because uh, I just. Which, honestly, you got to be super stoked about that decision looking back. Man, I am. It was the right decision. But at the time I was like, you know, you don't know. It's not gonna, it's not guaranteed to air just because you shoot. So right, right, that right. was a fear of mine. Like, oh, if we don't get a deal, maybe they won't air it. And they were trying right. to tell us like, no, be true to whatever you're going to do because we need people who take deals, we need people who turn down deals, we need people who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they need all of the things and all of the mix. But I'm just like, oh my gosh, I don't know if we're going to air. And then I remember after we finished, we wrapped our episode and we were outside like, I don't know if I should have took it. Robert ran up behind me and he shook my shoulders like, you should have took the deal. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> Well, you, you should uh, you should go back to him now and be like, "Hey, remember when you offered me four hundred k for twenty percent?" Well, now evaluation is you know exactly. And but then also like the more. black staff that we did not see came out and gave us like a standing ovation, like in Amazing. a circle. That's that was so crazy. Cool. We never yeah. expected that, Johnny. Ever. I was yeah. like, okay, maybe it was a good thing that we turned. You know, I just I just wanted to be honest. I felt like it was a bad deal, and I didn't want to, I have to go home. This is my real business. But, I think you made the right call. So you okay? So you Jeff uh, Weiner. So Jeff yeah. Weiner. Yes. Yeah, so so basically, Arlen, I told Arlen we went on Shark Tank. I was like, hey, I don't know. She's like, well, I can make an intro to you to this guy in Chicago. He like he invests really fast. He's like the fastest check in the Midwest. And we call that's him. Like a, he, that's like a cowboy. Fastest you're <laughs> in the West. Fastest angel check in the Midwest. And he's one of the early guys at LinkedIn, too, but he's not Jeff. And so um, he was in Kenya at the time. And he literally was like, I got three minutes and we could talk on the phone. So I pitched him in three minutes. And he was like, wow all right, I'll give you $100,000. And he was like, do you mind if my partner Jeff comes in too? And I was like, Jeff who? And he was like, Wiener, the CEO like that. I was like, oh, sure, Jeff can come in too. I, I guess so. I guess we can squeeze him in. <laughs> if we can find room. So they gave yeah. me $200 on a convertible note. Um, I'm sorry, a safe, a safe. And then uh, for the founders who were like, what is that? Look up safe on Cooley Go. It's basically how you can do a deal without having to be like a price round. And simple agreement for future equity is very kind of quick and cheap and easy way to um, exactly. raise equity capital uh, if you don't have a VC that's leading and pricing the round. And then when we went on the show, he just happened, Jeff just happens to see our episode and was like, honey, I think I invested in that company. <laughs> 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 yeah. And so he, he, he didn't even talked. know. He didn't know that you were again on Shark Tank. And so he, he literally calls me up personally and he's like, Kim, you are incredible. The sharks are crazy not to give you a deal. I want to invest. Can we invest a million dollars in your company? And I'm wow. like, let me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up saying yes, and then they ended up giving me a valuation that was like twelve million post money, hmm. which is way better than the two million valuation. And Robert, Robert had been offering two million post money, so literally six x. That's uh, so good. What a yeah, what a thank decision you. to turn that down. Thank you. 
Well, uh, I'm lost for words at this point. <laughs> uh, what? We, we haven't even gotten the crowdfund yet, Johnny. How do you mean? I know, I know, I know. I, there's so many things I want to ask you. I mean, uh, you've talked there about, you know, the 25K check for Marlin, like the Shark Tank, uh, Jeff Wiener. What about, like you mentioned credit cards before. I, I guess the Ireland thing is kind of, you know, at, the, at that point, you already, you have some, you had some revenue from the bucks. It sounds like, you know, it wasn't that profitable, but like had, wh what was the capital? to use right at the start like to, was that where the credit cards came in oh yeah uh, so, so it's, it's like obviously cpg like you know it's like it's it's not software right software you can get going with like basically zero caps or like what you guys are doing like you, you must have needed to raise some so how, how did you for folks that are trying to scrape by and bootstrap and make ends meet like yeah firstly like how how did you kind of you know raise a little bit of capital or what did you do kind of capital wise and then secondly any tips for how to how to bootstrap how to be as as lean as possible to make that money stretch further i think you should have one full-time employee for every million in revenue so and, yeah. and and that means if you haven't made a million in revenue then you should not be paying payroll taxes you should be everybody should be contractors um mm. because that's the only way you can make it <laughs> uh, mm. my payroll taxes are legitimately 30 percent of whatever i'm paying in payroll this is kind of mm. crazy so if i'm spending seventy thousand dollars to pay my team i'm paying thirty thousand in just payroll taxes every two weeks mm. so in order to be profitable as a cpg company you've got to make everybody contractors in the beginning and then wait to hire full-time employees based on the millions you have in revenue. And that's assuming you're not producing your stuff, right? That's assuming you're like buying it from somewhere else and you're just doing market. As far as getting the capital to meet those minimum order quantities, I personally think you should get a job in corporate, in tech, trying to make six figures, build up your good credit for a few years, because mm. that is usually what most people, a lot of people use their good credit to get their personal funds to then start their business. And so at the time, you know, Tim was working two contracts um, in tech. Mm. And so he was making around 100K per contract. And we would use that extra money, or our credit card availability to buy raw materials, to test things, to, 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 to buy Facebook ads. I'm not recommending this to people. This is the bet that we were willing to take on ourselves. Um, and we didn't have a rich uncle. And we also couldn't go to the bank and get any financing because we didn't have three years of financials of being in business. So couldn't get bank financing. I had signed up for every pitch competition, never won any money. And, you know, grants aren't, I guess they are a thing, but they take so long. That if you're trying right. to do a fast or pace or high growth startup, like it's just not a really an option all the time. Grants, in my opinion, are for like more either lifestyle businesses or like slower businesses, like service-based, right. things like that. Right. And so if it wasn't pitch competitions, it was going to have to be our personal finances. And so we literally had maybe three or four different credit cards and we put a lot lot of our stuff on there and just when we did that we knew we were going to raise money so at the point we were like we're going to use our credit cards we like knew we were going to raise money otherwise i would say borrow from friend, friends and family and or like raise a friend, friends and family round on a safe we'll do a we fund that or do a WeFunder. But <laughs> if you do a WeFunder, you need a community. So like Johnny loves me because I already had 100,000 customers coming to uh, when I walked into WeFunder and say, hey, I want to raise. Um, I think some people will start their business and want to crowdfund. And I think that if you haven't figured out what makes the business churn and you try to yeah. crowdfund, it's very tough because you need your community to back you. That's why you call it a community round, you know? Yeah, 100%. I do think it can be a good way to do a friends and family round. Like if you're doing a friends and family round anyway, I think you can kind of supercharge that a little bit because, you know, now you can can raise from everyone friends and family and publicly That's promote true. it but That's yeah true. it's going to be a grind it's going to be a lot harder work than it than it was for you i mean it ended up being hard work for you for a bunch of reasons that audit i know it was hard, still work. hard work it's still hard work even if you like raise the community around it's just you know 
It's a but at least you were able to raise, like most people, if they're starting out, like when you started out, there's no way they would have raised like multiple millions like you did. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I really like that as the, you know, go, go and get a well-paying job, uh, <laughs> a good-paying job, you know? Like that's actually not a, a kind of financing option that is usually, I feel like you hear, right? You hear like credit cards, bootstrapping, you know, like micro loans, you know, obviously like if you can raise from angels and VCs, friends and family. But yeah, also just like, you know, like, I mean, you had, you and Tim, um, your husband, he, you know, he was, he was, he was able to maybe do that and you were more full-time maybe on, on Carmex. Um, yeah. I would have happily worked full-time and, and which I was doing. And at one point I was making more than him when we graduated college. Like I was making the job that was almost six figures and he was working at Starbucks. Um, and that's mm -hmm. when he went to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But then we switched because we realized, okay, he's not a natural entrepreneur. He's not moving the business forward like we need. And he's like, Kim is good at this. She's a natural entrepreneur. She hustles. She can she executes every single day. I will work full time. And Kim, you figure out the business. And then once you get to a point where it's making tens of thousands of dollars a month, I'll leave and come work for the business. I'll give you three months to pay mortgage. And if you can't pay mortgage, then we're, I'm going to go back to work. Mm -hmm. So that was like our deal. We were in partnership. Shifting gears a little you've spoken about you know growth and you know raising capital you've also you know especially recently kind of been growing the company right building building the company how many how many employees are you guys now a little over 30. so any tips or you know mistakes you made along the way about you know as you grew the company like hired people built culture like, you know, lessons learned, what worked well, what didn't work well. You know, we manufactured because we kind of had to. But I think knowing what I know now, if I could have, I would have just, you know, bought my products um, from a, a co-packer. Yeah. Because it just would have been like, well, I know so much now, right? So now I know how to spin up a manufacturing facility. But like that is not knowledge that someone who, who has a, a product in Ulta or a product in Target really needs to know. Um, they need to know how to be able to sell their product. And that's how you kind of grow faster. I think it kind of stunted our growth a bit. It, having to figure out how to make products and buy different machines and voltage, wattage, um, uh, OSHA compliance, um, quality compliance, like regulation with the government, like just the FDA, the level of like knowledge and detail I have about formulation, raw materials, supply chain management, I just would not have had to have if I was just focused on selling this bottle of product right here every day. You know what I mean? And so that would be my recommendation if you can find a quality co-packer. Now, that being said, I have met some founders doing 60 million, 100 million, whatever, and they outsourced their manufacturing and found that the quality wasn't better, the timing wasn't better, and you still had shortages and out of stocks. And they were like, if this is going to be the case, we could have just kept our manufacturing. And then they brought it back in house. So who knows? Maybe I'm complaining now because I'm like, oh, my job is hard. But like maybe it was the best decision in the end, you know? Yeah. But what do you, um, any, anything else on like building, building the company? Um, I mentioned one, um, one, one employee per million. I, I really I, like that, by the way. We, I think we're that way. We fund, uh, I heard Sam Altman, you know, OpenAI uh, founder, former head of YC, talking about like the, the most important characteristics in a founder. Uh, and he talked about frugality being like one of the most important. And initially, I thought he was talking about like, you know, pinching the pennies and stuff. But I think he was mostly talking about hiring and just kind of being being slow to hire and like hiring behind growth as the head of it and i just think that gives you so much more flexibility and especially then when you're in a down economy like now it just like you have so much more optionality um and so yeah it sounds like that's a, a lesson you've you've learned as well yes yeah, so i interrupted you you're going to talk about like other other lessons from kind of growing oh no i mean that's the biggest lesson that's a hard lesson when you have to lay people off i mean you feel responsible you know that you're taking 
you know that you're taking money from their household and their family. Um, and that's the hardest, that's to me, the worst part of my job is having to lay people off. How do you do that? And how do you do that? And as, you know, humane or as, uh, you know, empathetic of a way as possible. You want people to know that it's not their fault. That it's like, Hey, we either didn't raise money as fast as we thought we would, or we weren't as profitable as we needed to be. So that's one. Two, you try to give them severance if you can, if you can afford it. You typically want to plan enough out so that you can give them severance. And then you want to communicate to your team that they're not going to be any other cuts beyond that. So those are just some lessons. Those are the, some of the harder lessons, I think, as a founder. I think if we got, if part of being a founder and being successful is being blindly optimistic. You have to be the first, you have to be delusional and think that you you can do what you're going to do because you yeah. have to believe it first. But that also means you also typically don't end up planning for failure. Right. And so when you don't plan for failure, how do I handle that communication? And I think you really have to kind of like put your big girl pants on and walk into the room and say, hey, own the mistake. Own it and and. And that can be hard for some people to do, you know, because it's a real blow to your ego and, yeah. and you have to build your ego up so big because people tell you no all the time and you don't want to go home feeling like you're worthless, you know? So I think it's a delicate balance, but that was one of the hardest lessons I had to learn this year, especially with the downward turn in the economy and trying to have some semblance of profitability this year as we go into retail and things like that. This is a really, this is a really weird thing to say, but the closest thing that I remember, like remembering, like from when I was a kid, the closest thing to like that conversation when you go in and you know you gotta like lay someone off is breaking up, breaking up with a girlfriend. I was mm. like, I had like exactly the same feeling like ahead of that conversation, and then as soon as the conversation happens, that everything is like kind of you're like relieved and you're like through it and like it's better like, like afterwards, but like it's just so much kind of you know dread and like kind of um, yeah. Uh, terror like leading up to that uh, to that conversation and, and the hard truth is that if you don't let those people off the whole company will go down you know so it's like it, yeah. it'll be even worse for you know you may lay off 10% people or you know whatever the number may be but then if you didn't you, you know you might not have a company in six months yeah you gotta do it you gotta do it you gotta bite the bullet like have that hard conversation the other lesson i've i've learned someone told me is like just like get it out there in the first five seconds of the conversation just like lead with it right out the gate and then it's out there and then at least mm -hmm. it kind of gets easier from there uh last last question for you um any what's your most like controversial um opinion on startups do you, do you kind of believe any anything about like building a company or you know cpg brand that you think is maybe you know counter to the prevailing uh orthodoxy yeah i think i would have made more money by now if i had stayed in corporate <laughs> You're not going to say that. You're not going to say that, Kim. You would have made more money, but um, you would have had a lot less fun. That's true. I would not be as smart. That is for sure. Um, and now, give me three, four, five, three to five more years. I probably won't have made more money in corporate than I will as a founder. Yeah, yeah. That's probably, that's going to be true. But, you know, in the short term, in the last decade, I probably would have, I probably have cut my earning potential by a few million dollars by a startup. And so, you know. Short I just time. Like, short, short time. Short Long term. Short -term. You're gonna catch up. And look, you know, Silicon Valley Bank went to zero. Like yeah. Bed Bath and Beyond, they were going out of business. Like you know, it's not like uh, that's guaranteed. You know, Chromebooks could still. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. You know, it happens. It it happens. It happens. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for everything that we have, and I'm just trying to stay the course. I love it. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been awesome. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to chatting again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me.